TealyFC.org. Um, with that, we are also having a Good Friday service, 6.30 p.m. on Good Friday. Um, so, yeah, those will be great Easter events, and we'd love to see you there. Um, also, Thursday, March 18th at 6.30 is common ground if you are a woman and want to attend. It will be downstairs and also on Zoom. And with that, I'm turning it over to the worship team. Good morning, everyone. Would you stand and worship with us in song? You free every captive and break every chain. 
David. It's good to be with you this morning. Those of you who are visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, so we're glad you're with us. Whether you're here in person or joining us online, we are glad you're here. And we continue in this time of worship. One of the ways we would invite you to worship with us is through giving. And so if you want to give, there is a basket on your left on the way out. You can drop your offering in there or you can give online at tlefc.org slash give. Also, this morning is we're going to celebrate communion at the end of our service. So there were like self-contained cups with a wafer on your way in. If you didn't get one of those, you can slip out at some point and grab one. But along with communion, we also take our benevolence offering on communion Sunday. It's like a special offering that we use to meet physical needs of people in need in our community in our church and so on your way out there'll be someone standing at the door holding a tray so the one the tray that's being held by someone will be the special kind of offering for benevolence we invite you to give to that as well will you pray with me father we praise you as these last few days we've experienced just a beautiful weather, a reminder that you are a God who makes all things new. That even when we walk through dark and dreary seasons, that you are not defeated, you are not finished, but you are in the process of making things new. We praise you for that. We praise you for the beautiful weather. We praise you for your goodness and always being at work to bring about your good purposes. Father, we we pray this morning for people in our church, people that we know who are going through one of those dark and dreary seasons in their own personal life, God, that they walk through trials, they walk through struggles, that you would be with them, that you would give them an abiding sense of your peace, that you would comfort them, that you would give them vision to see the hope that is before them, if not in this life, then in eternity. And yeah, we all live lives that are marked by a view of that hope that you are making all things new, that you are working all things for the good of those who love you. Father, we pray for the church throughout the world that it experience the trials of various kinds, God, that you would be with Christians wherever they may be if they seek to advance your kingdom if they face trials and persecution because of that, that you would give them endurance and the ability to be faithful to your gospel even in the midst of opposition. God, now as we continue to sing together, pray that you would focus our hearts, that we would sing these words, not just because they're on the screen, but because they are an overflow of our hearts. God, that you would 
fill us with an awe of your goodness, of your glory, and that that awe would overflow as we sing to you. Would you be glorified by what takes place here this morning in song and in hearing of your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Will you stand as we continue in worship?
God, that you are holy, holy, holy. We pray that we would worship you rightly in light of the fact of who you are, in light of your holiness. God, help us to see what an amazing, glorious God you are. Help us to live our lives in light of that fact. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you've had the chance to appreciate some of the beautiful weather the last couple days. Like we were outside at the park yesterday, and it was great to be outside. And like I went for a run in shorts; it was incredible. And like, but this time of year, as spring comes, for me, like, always brings to mind one thing, which is baseball. And like. If at like any point in my life you'd ask me growing up, like between like the ages of like six and thirteen, like what I wanted to be when I grow up, I would have told you I wanted to be a baseball player. Then like I hit thirteen and realized I was not good, and like dream kind of faded. But like I loved baseball, and like for me the dream was to grow up, be a baseball player, but not just any baseball player. I wanted to be a Milwaukee Brewer. And, like, for me, at that age, like, the worst possible thing that could happen is that, like, I grow up, I'm good enough to be a professional baseball player, and then I end up having to play for the Cubs or something. Like, like that was, like, a nightmare. Right? And so, like, the dream for any kid growing up loving sports is not just to play sport professionally, but to play for their hometown team. And for me, like, that dream didn't quite work out. But for, for Stephen Matz, it did. He was born in Stony Brook, New York, not far from where the Mets play like in Queens at City Field. And he was a big fan of the Mets growing up. And then in 2009, his childhood dream came true when he was drafted by the Mets in the 2009 Major League Baseball draft. Right, but for Matz, the dream got even better. Because not only did he get to play for his hometown team, his first game for that team was truly incredible. At the very first batter he faced in his very first game for the Mets, he had a home run, right, which is not a great start for a pitcher. But after that, he gave up only one more run and four more hits in seven and two-third innings, which is a pretty good start for any pitcher. But even more impressive is what Matt's did as a batter. Matt's recorded three hits and four RBIs in his first game for the Mets, which for a pitcher is pretty incredible. In fact, he was the first pitcher in baseball history to record that many hits and RBIs in his first game. Beyond that, he was the first Met at any position to get four RBIs in his very first game with the team. It was a, an incredible performance. Right? It was like the ultimate example of a local boy makes good kind of human interest story that the news loves to run. But of course, Matt didn't just like come out of nowhere for that first game. He spent six years 
after he was drafted, kind of toiling away in the minor leagues, honing his craft and building his reputation until he was finally called up to the majors. But after six years of toiling away, he returns to his home and he makes his debut and he does it in spectacular fashion. And Jesus experiences something similar in today's passage. So we're continuing our series through the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 this morning, starting in verse 14. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. And so in this passage, like Luke, or Jesus, returns home to Nazareth. And he makes his public ministry debut. And he does it in spectacular fashion. And it's clear from some of the details we see throughout Luke that like, he's been ministering before this. In fact, like Luke records things that probably happened before this chronologically. But Luke has a purpose for placing this first. Like Luke intentionally places this passage right at the start of Jesus' public ministry. By placing it here, by placing it at the the very beginning of his ministry, Luke is saying, like, this is what he wants people to see about Jesus. Right? This passage is going to frame and shape Jesus' public ministry. This passage is Jesus saying, like, this is who I am. This is what I am going to be about. This is what my mission is going to be as I minister. And if this passage is, you know, what Jesus is going to be about. If this passage is kind of an embodiment of Jesus' mission statement, and if we want to be people who follow Christ, who imitate Christ, then it's good for us to think carefully about what Jesus has to say to us in this passage as well. So with that in mind, let's read this passage together, starting in verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised them. So Jesus is here returning from his baptism, returning from his temptation in the wilderness to Galilee, to the region that he was from. Galilee is in the north of Israel. It's where Nazareth is. It's in his home region. And in Galilee, he's going around to all these different synagogues and teaching in them. Synagogues at this time didn't have a permanent full-time pastor, teacher, preacher, like no one to do the teaching full-time. And so they relied on these traveling rabbis or these traveling teachers to do the teaching each week. So Jesus has been going around and doing that. He's been going around teaching in different synagogues. And he's made a name for himself doing it. Everyone is praising him. That's what tells us. And now it's time to go not just to his home region, but to his hometown. And so picking up in 16, we read, He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Which, let's just, real quick side note, stop right there. So the Hebrew scriptures at this time, they're written on scrolls. They don't have chapter or verse numbers. They don't have punctuation. They don't even have like spaces between words. They don't even have vowels in the Hebrew alphabet at this time. 
Right? And so, like, just imagine, like, Jesus has to find Isaiah 61, and he's handed a scroll with just no chapters, no punctuation, no space between words. Like, how long would it take you to find the passage you want? But Jesus just, like, turns to it. Right? So Jesus knows his Bible. He knows the Bible well. So he turns to this passage in Isaiah 61, and he says, he's quoting Isaiah, he's saying, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled out the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious word that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what, you have, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So there's, there's a lot going on in this passage. If we could summarize it, like Jesus is saying, like a long time ago, Isaiah prophesied that someone would come who would be anointed by the Lord. And that word anointed in Hebrew is Mashiach, right? Messiah. Right? So Isaiah prophesied that a Messiah, an anointed one, would come. And when that Messiah came, he would do several things. He would proclaim good news to the poor. He would proclaim liberty to the captives. He would set at liberty the oppressed. And Jesus now is saying, "Like I'm him. Like, I'm that promised Messiah. It's me. The time has come. And as Isaiah promised Messiah, like, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor and to the disadvantaged and to the oppressed. Like on the surface, Right? That's not a very controversial statement. Right? That Jesus came to proclaim good news to the poor and the disadvantaged and the oppressed. Like, it's almost a direct quote from the mouth of Jesus. And yet, like the way we apply this statement and what it means for the church has long been a source of disagreement and dissension in the church. In his book, 
good news to the poor. Right? Tim Chester talked about some real people like he knows who understand this passage very differently. So first he talked about a guy named Brian. This is what he says about Brian. Brian happily calls himself a conservative evangelical. As far as he is concerned, the main task of the church is preaching the gospel. He is regularly involved in open-air preaching and door-to-door visitation. He sees any form of social involvement as a return to the social gospel. As far as he is concerned, and he is not slow to tell you this, social action is heresy. So people like Brian would point out rightly that almost all the verbs in this passage are about proclamation, right? They're about speaking. Jesus has been anointed to like proclaim good news to the poor and to proclaim liberty to the captives and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Right? Those words are about speaking, about yes, the spoken word. And therefore the mission of Christians should be to focus on speaking and on proclamation. But on the other hand, you have people like Albert in Tim Chester's book who understand this passage in a very different way. This is what Chester says about Albert. Albert calls himself a post-evangelical. He says there are many good things about the evangelical church in which he grew up, but he himself has grown out of evangelicalism's narrowness. Like his postmodern friends, he is wary of truth claims, and instead he wants to emphasize symbols and images. This makes him much more comfortable with social involvement than with evangelism. The catchphrase is, don't fork your truth on others. Instead, we should walk with the poor, care for them, and help them on their faith journey while expecting them to enrich our own faith journeys. So people like Albert, they read that passage and they focus on the words like, poor and oppressed. And they see Jesus' primary goal as helping the poor and the needy and the oppressed escape from their lowly economic and societal position. But they do it without much concern for the content of the good news that is proclaimed. But in reality, what we see in Luke and say passage is that like, Jesus called us to balance like, these two positions. And that he shows us how to balance them in his own ministry and life. So this morning, we want to learn from Jesus what it looks like to live out his mission. And then, since he has called us to be imitators of Christ, to show us how we can conform our lives with Jesus as we join him on that mission. I want to do that by focusing on two elements in what Jesus said in this passage. First, I want to focus on the proclamation of good news. What does it mean? What does it look like to actually proclaim good news? And then second, I want to look at the poor and the disadvantaged and the oppressed and like ask, like, who does Jesus have in mind when he gives us these categories of people? So let's start by looking at the proclamation of good news. The question is, like, what does the proclamation of good news look like? Okay. As we said a minute ago, like, most of the verbs, most of the action words in this passage are related to proclamation. 
that Jesus' mission primarily is one of proclaiming, of speaking good news. And then, so for us, like our primary mission too is one of speaking good news to others. Like our primary focus should be on telling people, proclaiming to people right, the good news about Jesus, right? telling them that Jesus came to die on the cross for their sins, right? that even though they're sinful, they can't earn their way to God, but that because of Jesus, through faith in him, they can be restored to a right relationship with Jesus. Right? That should be our, our focus. Right? St. Francis of Assisi is often quoted as saying, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Two things. One, he never said that. We have no record of it anywhere. And two, like, it's impossible to preach the gospel without words. Like, the gospel is verbal. Its content is, has words to it. It is good news. Right? You can't read the newspaper, listen to the news without words. Like our primary mission as followers of Jesus is to tell people good news. To speak the news of Jesus' amazing saving grace. But we need to be careful not to take that too far. As we ask the question, like, what does this proclamation look like? What we see in Jesus' life is that, like, Jesus' mission is one of proclamation, yes, but not to the neglect of meeting physical needs. Like we see this in one of the examples that Jesus gives us in this passage. Right? Talking about how Elijah was sent to the widow in Zarephath. And in this story, Elijah comes to the widow's house and he asks her for some bread and some water. There's a problem which is that there's been a severe famine and drought in the land for three years. And this widow only has a tiny bit of flour, a tiny bit of water left before her food supply is entirely gone. And so Elijah asks for some water, some bread, and she says this, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Like notice like how Elijah doesn't respond to this. He does not say, well, if you're going to die, like, let me tell you about the coming Messiah so you can make sure your sins are taken care of and you can have eternity in heaven. He doesn't say that. He provides for her physical needs. He causes her oil and her flour to multiply and to not run out. He meets physical needs. In the same way, like throughout the rest of the book of Luke, Jesus is constantly meeting physical needs along with his verbal proclamation. In verses four, or chapter 4 and 5, like, we'll see Jesus heal many who are sick. He'll, we'll see him cleanse a leper. We'll see him heal a paralytic. And in all those cases, the person's greatest need was to hear the good news of the kingdom proclaimed. But that didn't stop Jesus from meeting the lesser physical need along with proclaiming the gospel. 
perhaps nowhere is this more clear than in Luke 10. You probably know this passage is the parable of the Good Samaritan. One of the interesting things about this parable is how it starts. A lawyer stands up and he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? If there was ever a time for Jesus to be like, all right, here's the gospel. Like, let's lay it out. Here it is. Like, this is it. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like, if I'm Jesus, I'm saying like, well, believe in me and you will be saved. The lawyer tossing Jesus a softball here. But Jesus doesn't respond that way. Like, instead, he responds by going into this, certain, this parable of the great Good Samaritan. And in this parable, like, a man is beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And so first, a priest sees the man lying on the side of the road, but he crosses to the other side, doesn't help him, he crosses to the other side and moves on. Then a Levite comes, he does the same thing, he doesn't help the man. And then finally a Samaritan, like a despised, dirty, hated Samaritan comes and he offers the man aid. He meets the man's needs. And the point of the parable is like, if you encounter anyone who's in need, like that person is your neighbor. You should love them enough to care for them and to meet their needs. Jesus doesn't tell that parable to condemn the Samaritan for not preaching the gospel. He tells that parable to commend the Samaritan for meeting the man's needs, and he then commands us to do likewise. Meeting the physical needs of the poor and the oppressed is linked with both gospel proclamation and gospel living throughout Luke's gospel. We see this balance illustrated clearly in Matthew 9, when Matthew writes, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming, and, Matthew writes, healing every disease and every affliction. So yes, like the mission of Jesus is one of proclamation. It's one of speaking the good news. And as such, like our primary Mission should be engaging non-believers with the gospel, to proclaim the good news to them as well. The greatest thing we can do for anyone is to tell them about Jesus. That doesn't prohibit us or stop us from meeting physical needs along with our proclamation. In fact, like based on the example of Jesus, meeting physical needs should regularly be part of our gospel proclamation. And it can increase the effectiveness of our gospel proclamation. Which brings us to the second part of the passage we want to focus on, which is the poor and the disadvantaged and the oppressed. Like, Who did Jesus have in mind when he said that he came to proclaim good news to the poor? That he came to proclaim freedom for the prisoners? and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Like, who does he have in mind when he talks about the poor and prisoners and blind and oppressed? And again, like this question can bring out differences of opinion among Christians. 
There are some who would argue that that the poor and the oppressed are those who are materially poor, materially oppressed. They lack money. They are like mistreated by earthly forces and authority over them. That the blind here are truly physically blind. But others would argue that like Luke has in mind that, that the poor are the spiritually poor, right? those who don't know God. Right? That the oppressed are those who are oppressed by sin. That the blind are those who are blind to spiritual realities. So the question then is, like, who's right? Who are the poor and the disadvantaged and the oppressed in this passage? There's a couple things to consider when we like, answer that question. Like first, as I said, like, everything Jesus reads, almost everything Jesus reads, in this passage comes from Isaiah 61. And the main focus of Isaiah 61 is spiritual salvation, not material blessing. Additionally, Jesus illustrates a point by giving the example of the Syrian general Naaman. So Naaman's this high-ranking general in the mighty Syrian army. Right? He's not a picture of a materially poor person. And yet Jesus uses him to illustrate what it means to care for the poor. And so the primary focus of this passage is on those who are Spiritually poor, spiritually blind, those who are oppressed by their sin. But again, it's easy to want to take this too far. We've got to be careful not to do that. And just because this passage is primarily about spiritual salvation, doesn't mean that Jesus has nothing to say about the physically poor, poor and the physically oppressed. One commentator put it this way. Well, Isaiah 61 first sees a salvific fulfillment, it is, it is also certain that the text cannot mean less than the gospel going to the poor people, the imprisoned and the oppressed. The poor here are certainly the poor who are impoverished by their sin, but it is not less than the poor who are impoverished in the world. There's a both and going on here. That the poor are primarily, yes, the spiritually poor. But that includes the physically poor as well. Like throughout the book of Luke, Jesus has a special, or Luke has a special focus on those who are poor. For example, in Luke 14, Jesus says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you will be repaid. But when you feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And likewise, in Matthew, Jesus says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, 
and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What we see in the life of Jesus, that his mission is primarily to the spiritually poor, those who need to know God but never to the neglect of the materially poor. On the contrary, Jesus seems to have a, a special concern for the materially poor. So the question is, what does it look like for us to apply this in our own lives? What does it look like for us to join Jesus in proclaiming good news to the poor, disadvantaged and oppressed? The fact of the matter is, like, I don't have a great answer to that question all figured out. Like, I struggle with how to balance all these things, and I don't do a great job even when I do think I know the answer of actually doing it. But here's what I would say. Like, joining Jesus in this mission of proclaiming good news to all who are spiritually poor Joining Jesus and proclaiming the good news to everyone who needs to, who needs Jesus, which is everyone. Like we should do that by like proclaiming the good news by speaking the good news wherever we are. But that doesn't mean we're free to stay in our like in a safe cultural bubble and only proclaim the good news to those who are like, in our own social circles or in our own social economic class. On the contrary, Jesus calls us not to neglect the materially poor as we carry forward this mission. The materially poor and the oppressed receive a special concern from Jesus. So they should receive a special concern from us as well. I don't have this all figured out, but some questions I've been asking myself this week I would encourage you to ask yourself as well. Like, like, what do I do with my time, my money, the resources that reflect the level of concern for the poor that Jesus showed? Or the follow-up, like, what can I do with my money and time and resources like, to more closely be obedient to Jesus and showing his level of concern for the poor? I think those are, those are helpful questions to ask and to answer. But if I'm honest, like when I think about how I show concern for the poor and the needy, it's convicting. Like I know I fall short in this area. And because of that, it's easy to wallow in guilt. Right? Or to think like, man, God must be upset with me for the way I fail in applying this. But to think that misses 
ultimately the point of this passage. But just remember how this passage ends. Verses 28-30 say, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. If there's like one verse in the Bible that I want a little more detail about than we get, it's Luke 4.30. Like, passing through their midst, he went away. Like, what? Like, Luke doesn't like treat this as extraordinary. He just like treats it as plain fact. He just kind of states it and moves on. Like, come on, Luke. Can I just have a couple details? Like, what? Like, how did the crowd react? How did Jesus do it? Like, give me something. But he doesn't do it. And, like, the reason is, like, that verse isn't there for us to just be amazed by all the cool things Jesus can do. Like, that verse is there for a very specific reason. Like, Luke here, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, shows us that Jesus is fully capable of walking through a murderous crowd unharmed. And he shows us that so that when, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, when another murderous crowd, this one led by Judas, approaches Jesus, we'll know that Jesus submits willingly. Not because he had no other choice, but because he chose, he willingly chose to submit himself to that murderous crowd. Like, Jesus could have walked through that crowd the same way he walked through this one. But he chose not to. Why? Because the only way for spiritually poor, disadvantaged, oppressed me and spiritually poor, disadvantaged, and oppressed you, the only way for us to receive the good news that Jesus came to proclaim was that he willingly submitted himself to that arrest, and to that flogging, and to mockery, and ultimately to crucifixion. And in that crucifixion, when he submitted himself to that crowd, Jesus died the death we deserve to die for all the time that we have failed to care for the poor as we should. By submitting himself to that arrest, he paid the penalty for all the times we failed to do the things that we are supposed to do. All of our failures, all of our sins are taken care of when Jesus chose not to walk through that crowd that Judas led. So I hope that we've seen that what we've seen this morning, like it, it fuels us to show concern for the poor and the oppressed. But my prayers that were motivated not by some vain attempt to please God with our own self-effort, but that we are motivated by the fact that God loved us when we were at our poorest, when we were at our most oppressed. And that, that love that God showed for us would fuel us to love others who are poor and oppressed. So in just a minute, we're going we're to take communion together. 
And in taking communion, we have the chance to remind ourselves in a tangible way what we just heard. That when we were poor, when we were spiritually oppressed, when we were imprisoned by our sin, God sent Jesus to willfully die in our place. We get the chance to take his, the bread, symbolic of his broken body, and the juice, symbolic of his blood poured out as a reminder of the way that he has forgiven us for all the sins we have committed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus, though fully capable, did not walk through the crowd that came to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he submitted himself to that crowd. He submitted himself to arrest and to beatings and to mock trials and ultimately to crucifixion and death in order to die in our place for all the times that we've failed to live the life you made us to live. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. God, help us to live our lives now in light of the fact that we know what Jesus has done for us, that we are amazed by your love for us, and would it fuel us show love towards others to meet the needs of the poor and the imprisoned and the oppressed. God, help us to be faithful in proclaiming good news, of telling people around us no matter what situation of life they find themselves in, the good news of what Jesus has done for them. What our chief concern, our chief desire as a church be to see your kingdom advance throughout Three Lakes, throughout the world, throughout our region. Would you be glorified by the lives we live as we live them in light of the fact of what you've done for us in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. In just a minute, I'll take communion. I'll give us a few minutes to just sit, reflect on what Jesus has done for us. If there's things we confess to Jesus in this time, whether it's related to this passage or this other sin, I would invite you to do that. I think it's a few minutes to reflect quietly in our own hearts on what Jesus has done for us.
Lord Jesus, on night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Partake. Father, we thank you for these tangible reminders of what you've done for us in Jesus. but to never take lightly what we believe, what we know Jesus did. I would be amazed more and more each day what a great Savior Jesus is. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of benediction, we leave the place here, these words. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You're dismissed.